0: Dan Robinson. I'm interviewing Sian Vijayasekaran, who is a paediatric ENT surgeon with a strong interest in paediatric airway reconstruction. He did two years of working in Cincinnati with uh, Robert Cotton and uh, currently works in Perth. So Shean, today we're talking about uh, adenotonsillectomy in kids. Um, can you briefly describe the presumed function of the tonsils?
1: Well, the tonsils and adenoids are part of uh, Walday's ring of lymphoid tissue. So they're involved in Humoral, and that is uh, antibody production side of the immune system, and cell-mediated immu- cell-mediated immunity. They were probably designed as uh, the first port which uh, inhaled and ingested organisms would encounter the immune system, and uh, then would would then enable the immune system to react to them. People often ask me why then are we encountering so many problems with the tonsils and adenoids. Uh, in our current uh, situation, and it's probably because they weren't designed to deal with the the load of bacteria and viruses uh, our children and adults encounter in these urban environments. And I guess um, my simple theory would be that they're overwhelmed by exposure to this load of microbials, and uh, hence um, swell and
0: cause obstruction. When does adenoid tonsillar tissue begin to hypertrophy
1: and then when does the adenoid tissue begin to involute? Well, I think the hypertrophy can begin very early. I mean, I see babies less than three months of age with adenoidal hypertrophy often uh, an incidental finding when I'm evaluating them for upper airway obstruction presumed due to laryngomalacia. So I think it can happen very early and it may well be a very early viral infection um, that triggers the uh, hypertrophy of the lymphoid tissue. So soon after birth, you can see adenoidal hypertrophy. In terms of involution, the adenoid in general tends to involute um, starting somewhere in the second half of the first decade. But it's highly variable and you can still see teenagers with significant adenoidal hypertrophy, especially following a large viral load, such as kids who've had a severe glandular fever, a by virus infection. You can see some of those children with massive adenoidal enlargement along with the massive tonsillar enlargement many months and sometimes years after they've had an EBV infection. So is there any evidence to suggest
0: that patients who have their tonsils and adenoids or adenoids removed are
1: less immune-competent? In general, there isn't. In general, most studies would show that children who have uh, adenotonsillectomy for the indication of recurrent tonsillitis or sleep apnea are healthier after the surgery. They have less hospital visits, less GP visits, less antibiotic use. So in general, they're healthier. Some kids who present with severe adenotonsil disease, on the other hand, can be immune deficient. So one of the classic cases are kids with RGA deficiency who present with recurrent tonsillitis. Kids with mannose-binding lectin deficiency, um, they present with recurrent tonsillitis from a very young age. And then kids who have other inflammatory disorders, such as uh, FAPA syndrome, PFAPA syndrome, who present with recurrent tonsillitis and recurrent febrile illnesses, have um, immune defects that render them at greater risk of suffering from adenoid adenotonsillar disease. There are some interesting studies... Um, If you look at people who have had their tonsils and adenoids out, they do secrete less IgA to polio. And there have been some studies that have shown increased risk of polio infection in people who've had adenotonsillectomy. Uh, Although this is usually mitigated by the fact that our community is immunised against polio. So the risk is not significant in modern communities.
0: Can you also briefly describe uh, sleep-disordered
1: breathing in the paediatric patient? Well, sleep-disordered breathing is a condition of upper airway obstruction. Typically, um, patients present with mouth-breathing, stertor more than snoring as such. So children don't tend to have the typical kind of snore. They often present with what I call the Darth Vader sound, like a... (sighs) And that's because um, when you have... Mild to moderate airway obstruction, you can have that vibratory sound. When you have severe airway obstruction, you tend to present more with the sound of turbulent airflow, which is the latter sound. Uh, Children uh, who snore sleep in unusual positions. They usually sleep hyperextended. They sleep restlessly. Um, They may not always wake frequently. Observed apneas as such are less common, so it's uncommon to see people to say they completely stop breathing. But hypopnea, so reduced um, tidal volumes, are more common in children, uh, as is the, as are the daytime features of irritability, behavioural change uh, in younger kids, and then uh, concentration problems uh, and lethargy in older children. When you're seeing a patient preoperatively
0: that you're considering doing a tonsillectomy, when, when do you order a sleep study on these patients?
1: I order a sleep study, um, in general, if the history and examination don't concur. So... I see a kid. The patients describe. Uh, the patient's family may describe features consistent with severe sleep apnea, but when you examine them, examine them, you don't see big tonsils and adenoids. Um, there's no obvious stertor, mouth breathing. So um, the sleep study then will help guide me where to proceed next. And there are difficulties with sleep studies. They're not a perfect uh, assessment. You know, if you look at criteria with which people are graded for obstructive sleep apnea. The American Sleep Association criteria vary from the Stanford criteria. The majority of sleep labs use the American Sleep Association criteria. And if you use the Stanford criteria, a recent study showed that if you use the American Sleep Association criteria for obstructive sleep apnea, only about 20% of children who were deemed to be uh, have sleep apnea on the Stanford criteria would have a positive test. So it's not a perfect test. And there are a lot of children who have what I'd call an upper airway obstruction, uh, or upper airways resistance syndrome, where they have a negative sleep study, but they present with all the features of obstructive sleep apnea, and all of their features and symptoms respond to treatment, just like children who have a positive sleep study. So it's not a perfect test, and you've got to take this into, into account when you order the test, that you may have a child who's got all the features of sleep apnea, but has a negative sleep study, and then you're having to deal with this quandary. Um, so that's one of the issues with sleep studies. Getting back to the other group of children who I'd uh, organized a sleep study on, two syndromic kids, kids with Down syndrome, beckwith vitamin syndrome, children who you think may not have a complete resolution uh, after their treatment. Uh, it's important to get a sleep study so you can compare pre- and post-treatment degrees of obstruction. And then unusual cases, little uh, babies, children under the age of one, who present with upper airway obstruction. I like to quantify the degree of sleep apnea. One, to make sure they've got it before you intervene because of their age, but two, also because you may need to do a pre- and post-study to, to look at the effects of your interventions. In relation to
0: obstructive sleep apnea in kids, what's the criteria for OSA which you use?
1: The diagnosis hinges on the number of obstructive apneas and hypopneas, um, so the OAHR index, and greater than or equal to one per hour is considered significant. But really, you know, you need to look further than that. You know, you really, we really should be looking at things like EEGs, um, looking for changes in arousal, uh, looking for changes in um, oxygen saturation. And it's really not the change in, in oxygen saturation, in my opinion, that is the cause of the daytime features of sleep apnea. It's more the arousals. So in fact. Daytime features of lethargy and concentration problems are more closely correlated with arousals than with saturation changes. So it's not just looking at the numbers, looking at arousals, EEG changes, other features on the sleep study, in addition to our desaturation, increased respiratory effort, um, which you may see if you use um, an esophageal manometer, usually only done in uh, experimental situations, uh, and uh, CO2 measures. So it's looking at the whole picture, not just the number.
0: What is the burden of disease of patients who need to have an adenotonsillectomy uh, in Australia?
1: A recent study suggested that somewhere between five and ten percent of children snore, and somewhere between two and three percent of kids would have true obstructive sleep apnea. Now, if you look at some of the more recent studies, they would suggest that even what we call simple snoring is not that simple, and children with who snore but have a negative sleep study do have many of the um, daytime manifestations of obstructive sleep apnea. So that's the burden.
0: What are the indications uh, in your practice for performing an adenotosylectomy?
1: It's a history of uh, the features we've described, an examination that concurs with the history. Uh, if the history and examination concur, then I don't normally perform a sleep study um, that, you know we we discuss the condition with the family and they usually proceed most of the patients i see are motivated to have something done uh, even prior to seeing me because i've uh, read about it or seen their child suffer and so on the other indications for adenotonsillectomy in my practice are recurrent tonsillitis in some uh, in the much smaller percentage of cases dysphagia or drooling uh, and i certainly would do an adenotonsillectomy ahead of doing any form of surgery to treat drooling or uh, well, other surgery to treat drooling, and, and rarely for to exclude a neoplasia. What techniques do
0: you utilise uh, whilst performing adenotonsilectomy, and why? Uh,
1: my favourite technique is coblation. In my opinion, uh, and in my hands, it is a safe uh, operation with a very low primary and secondary hemorrhage rate. It enables a faster recovery with, in my experience, reduced analgesia requirement and a quicker return to uh, normal functioning.
0: And do you use the
1: coblator as well for an adenoidectomy as well? If I'm doing an adenoid tonsillectomy, I use the coblator for the adenoid and the tonsil. If I am doing an adenoidectomy alone, then uh, because of the cost of the coblator, I tend to use a suction diathermy uh, instead. How do you modify your technique
0: in adenoidectomy in a patient who has a bifid uvula or a submucous cleft?
1: Uh, Look, I'm very cautious in treating any of those uh, that group of patients. So if the child has a bifid uvula but no obvious submucous cleft palate, I think that's very different to a child who's got a submucous cleft palate. So if they've got a bifid uvula and clinically I assess them preoperatively and they're not hypernasal, uh, and intraoperatively I I assess them and I find that they've got an intact palate, I will still uh, proceed with an adenoidectomy, but I do a partial superior adenoidectomy only leaving the inferior half of the adenoid uh, in the region of Paso Vance Ridge. In children who have an obvious submucous cleft palate or have a repaired cleft palate, I treat all of these children through uh, the multidisciplinary clinic at Princess Margaret Hospital. Uh, and in these children, adenoidectomy is absolutely contraindicated in general. However, in the setting of a multidisciplinary uh, clinic, where unfortunately um, there's more grey than black and white, we sometimes will undertake an adenodectomy, for example, in a child who's got severe sleep apnea, um, whose vocal resonance may not be too bad, with a thorough understanding of the family that we may make the vocal resonance worse. But an attempt to treat their severe sleep apnea, we may uh, only be able to do this by performing a partial adnodectomy and a tonsillectomy. Uh, and so, in special settings and in special patients, adenoidectomy can be performed, albeit with the risk of making some of their making their vocal
0: resonance worse. What rate of uh, adenoid regrowth do you tell your patients?
1: I tell my patients two percent. Uh, I think it's somewhere between zero and five percent. Uh, there are s- several factors that um, I think you know you need to consider when when discussing this. The younger the patient has their adenoid out, the greater the chance of regrowth. Two, children with immune deficiency have a much greater rate greater rate of regrowth of the adenoid than children who don't. And I think children with atopy, and even though I have no science to back this up, may perhaps have a greater rate of adenoid regrowth than children who don't.
0: Is there any role uh, for tonsil reduction surgery in a patient who's less than three as far as you're concerned uh, in the hope of avoiding lingual tonsillar hypertrophy?
1: I perform uh, intracapsular or partial tonsillectomy in very few patients um, because I don't think the morbidity improvements in partial tonsillectomy are worth the increased risk of having a second procedure to perform a completion tonsillectomy, which can be anywhere between 5 and 10% of cases. So rarely do I do partial tonsillectomy. If I do, it's normally in uh, a syndromic child under the age of six months who's got severe obstructive sleep apnea, or uh, at a parental request. I've not had any experience with with lingual hypertrophy being a significant consequence of total tonsillectomy.
0: And do you infiltrate uh, local anaesthetic after you remove
1: the tonsils? So in older children, eight years and over, I infiltrate local anaesthetic preoperatively. In younger children, to reduce the risk of intraarterial injection, I apply uh, anaesthesia topically to the tonsil bed after tonsillectomy. And uh, so I use um, a, a local anaesthetic and adrenaline-soaked swab and I place it in both tonsillar fossa at the end of the tonsillectomy. Uh, there are some studies uh, that have shown that topical uh, local anaesthetic uh, in little children is as effective as injection of local anaesthetic into the tonsillar bed um, in providing um, analgesia in the, in the perioperative period. Uh, and so um, that's been my practice for the younger children. And certainly um, in a six or seven-year-old kid, if you, uh, if you ask them, they'll tell you that their tongue uh, is numb at the end of the procedure if they're awake enough and compliant enough to discuss these issues with you uh, after topical uh, application of local anaesthetic.
0: Post-operatively, do you give uh, patients antibiotics? After they've
1: had the, had a tonsillation? Yes, all my patients have uh, seven days of oral antibiotics post-operatively.
0: What pain relief during this period do you give those patients? So
1: we use paracetamol QID for as long as is required, which is normally somewhere between three and ten days. For pain that's not covered by paracetamol, um, we use oxynorm. Usually, uh, the dose is somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5. Sorry. Point one, well, let's say point one milligrams per kilogram, uh, an average dose for breakthrough pain um, that's not covered by Panadol. Uh, in children who are opiate sensitive, or who have pain despite paracetamol and um, oxycodone, I use uh, ibuprofen.
0: You've mentioned uh, patients who are codeine sensitive. What are the features that make you suspicious of a patient being codeine sensitive?
1: Um, so we're very cautious with kids who have clinically um, or sleep study proven severe obstructive sleep apnea. Two kids who have um, had a test dose of oxynol uh, in the post-operative period and have been found to be excessively sedated. Those patients, plus there are groups of patients that whose ethnic groups. Have high rates of fast metabolism, so Middle Eastern children and North African children have very uh, have very high uh, prevalence of uh, fast metabolism of opiates. Uh, and even though this is more of a problem with codeine than with oxycodone, um, those, cho- those children those children are very um, cautious with uh, using oxycodone. So sometimes we will even use 0.05 milligrams per kilogram. Do you allow
0: anti-inflammatories um, in your patients either? preoperatively or postoperatively?
1: So, no, I don't encourage uh, um, ibuprofen um, use or or any anti-inflammatory use preoperatively. Postoperatively, I'm happy to use it sparingly, not because there's much evidence that suggests that ibuprofen is associated with uh, increased secondary hemorrhage rates, but there is some evidence to show that if there is a secondary hemorrhage, it's usually associated with greater blood loss. One. Two, um... I feel that if you can adequately control the pain with paracetamol mainly and with the occasional dose of oxycodone, then the risks of secondary hemorrhage are completely mitigated. Uh, and lastly, you know, there is a not an insig- insignificant prevalence of von Willebrand's disease in the community and uh, I suspect you, inc- you will uh, unmask those patients in that post-tonslectomy period if you use uh, ibuprofen regularly. Finally, uh, is there anything else
0: which um, we which you'd either like to add, which we haven't covered, uh, or any point which we have covered um, which you'd like to further elaborate on um, as a parting comment in relation
1: to adenotonsillectomy like in kids? I think my main uh, point uh, would be that snoring is not normal. People often uh, don't ask the right questions uh, with respect to uh, snoring. You know, it's more than just the noise they make; it's the, the way they sleep their restlessness and all of that kind of stuff that should be asked at the, in the history. Two, um, sleep studies are not bulletproof. Uh, you know, they uh, are an artificial assessment uh, in one night of the child's life that may not represent what's, go- what's going on uh, in every other day of the year. Um, and certainly, the criteria for paediatric sleep study are an evolving beast, And we may find that if we apply different criteria to our sleep studies, a lot more children will have a positive sleep study than we are currently finding on sleep studies that are performed. Thank you. Thank you, Shane.